Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Season three, our first book review. I'm so excited to start season three. I know, me too. I feel like this is going to be a good season. I think so too. We spent so much time curating the book list that now I'm like really happy with the ones that we have. Well, today we're going to be talking about The Secret History by the famous Donna Tartt. Yeah, and I didn't realize until we started reading it and decided to do this episode that this book came out in 1992, so it's mm-hmm. over 30 years old at this point, and yeah. I think there's been kind of a resurgence in its popularity. Probably because of the Goldfinch. I feel like that just got so popular so automatically, like her other book also gained popularity. Maybe. Yeah, and then the Goldfinch was made into a movie also. Mm-hmm. So... We'll start out with a little summary like we do in every episode, then we'll get into the themes we picked, and then our full review, discussion, and some deep dives. So this book is set in a sheltered New England liberal arts college that is probably loosely based on Donna Tartt's own alma mater, but has the atmosphere of a lot of these East Coast preppy liberal arts colleges. And it starts out with, in the first line, this is not a spoiler, we learn that one of the students has died. And the group of students that this book is about is implicated. So our narrator is Richard Pappin, or Pepin, depending on how pretentious I want to be. Um, <laughs> he is from this smallish city in California. He decides to go to Hampton College on somewhat of a whim. And there he meets this group of five students who are in the classics department. So he decides to take classics because he's learned Greek. And at first, he isn't really able to get into the course, but suddenly he's accepted by this group of people and he starts to get to know them. And the five students are Bunny, who is the character that dies that we're told in the first sentence. Henry Winter, who is kind of this big, looming figure, who's pretty formal and a bit reserved at the beginning. Charles and Camilla Macaulay, who are twins and have kind of this mysterious background that a little bit more and more is revealed as we read along. And Francis Abernathy, who is a rich heir, essentially, of East Coast non-royal royalty. And finally, Julian, who is their teacher and spiritual guide, mentor, all of the above as they go along. So that is kind of the setup of the story. And as we keep talking about it, we'll talk about the different elements as we go further in the book. But if you haven't read it yet, this is probably your place to stop, read it, and then get back. What theme did you pick? I picked aesthetics. 
Okay. I felt like that was a super prominent theme throughout the book and something that a lot of the characters, like it's their raison d'etre, essentially. And it made me think about the idea of an aesthetic life as opposed to an ethical life, which originally that duality was written by Kierkegaard. I have not read anything by Kierkegaard, but it is one of the central themes in Either Or, which is the sequel to Elif Batuman's The Idiot. And that duality was in my mind a lot because I had been introduced to that concept and I felt like it fit with this novel, like the ethical and the aesthetic. And also a lot of times throughout the book, Julian says beauty is terror, mm-hmm. but he doesn't seem to say it in a way to warn them away from that pursuit. He definitely encourages it, yeah. Yeah, to entice them into it more. So that was the theme that I picked. What about you? The theme that I picked was paranoia. Oh. And and I could just feel like this growing anxiety within the book. The book was building to madness. And I feel like paranoia can sometimes lead, sometimes lead to madness. So I'm going to save a lot of my theme discussions throughout our discussion. I mean, she does a good job of writing tension. Mm-hmm. Like the whole novel, 600 pages or however much. Yeah, and it's crazy because we already know what happens. Like the book starts off with telling us that Bunny has died and that these five kids are somehow involved in his death. And then it switches back in time to when Richard joins the college and meets Mm -hmm. Bunny for the first time and all the five other students. So you already know what happens, kind of. So the fact that you still have this like tension and suspense throughout the entire book, I think is like requires a lot of talent. Yeah. We already know the who and the what, and the book is kind of the why and the how, which is just Mm -hmm. a really interesting take on I wouldn't call this a murder mystery novel, but Mm -mm. I think the reason we put it in the season is because of the gothic elements. Yeah, like dark academia genre. Yes, yes. And I think traditionally a lot of gothic novels I think of as European with big castles and vampires and ghosts and thinking about how the gothic fits into the United States, like the American tradition is interesting because I think this is definitely one of those branches. I know there's Southern Gothic, but the academic, dark academia is definitely another branch of like the Gothic genre. Mm -hmm. Before we get into all of our analysis and thematic discussion, I wanted to talk about the story kind of in order because there's, in my head, there's different parts of the books that are distinct from each other. So Mm -hmm. the first part is probably the first like 150 to 200 pages is all build up. So like you said, Richard Pappen comes to the college. He joins this group. We learn about their, a little bit about their eccentricities and we meet their mentor, Julian, and we start to see some of the relationships between the characters and a little bit of the facade falls away where There's a few moments here and there where Richard notices that something's a bit off or two characters are not getting along, and that kind of is very subtle in the first part. I think another big part of the beginning of the book is how she kind of paints the time and setting, because she spends a lot of time not necessarily describing Richard's background, but describing his 
personality in examples of what happened to him in his past. Like, he doesn't outright Mm -hmm. say, I hate my parents. They talk about examples of his parents maybe not treating him so great, and then him, part of the reason why he thinks about going all the way across the country to Hampton College from California is to maybe get away from his parents. And she does a really great job of painting the landscape of Hampton College when Richard first arrives. And I feel like the setting of the book takes a lot of importance to contribute to the general atmosphere of the the book. When they first describe Hampton College, you immediately get the feeling, okay, this is a very privileged and isolated college town. And you kind of get the same feeling from all the five classic... I keep keep calling them in my head the classics, like, as if they're the plastics from Mean Girls. (laughs) (laughs) But um, they... The privilege and isolation tracks with them as well. So all four of these classics kids are very privileged and kind of isolated from reality in some ways. And so I thought those parallels that she drew with the atmosphere of the college to the students was very well done. Yeah, it's a super atmospheric book. And I'm really glad we're reading this in winter because I just Mm -hmm. like the trees and the snow and the leaves. It just makes me think of winter. And you're right. Like everything she does is so intentional. The way that she builds up this atmosphere. I mean, it is just really enjoyable to read about because she writes so well, but also it is important for the plot and the characters and what ends up happening. And I've mentioned Wuthering Heights so many times on this podcast, but it's kind of like Wuthering Heights where the atmosphere and the weather and the natural landscape is so important in reflecting the characters and what happens. And so this idea, and she even brings in, this is in the first part of the book, the back, the back a by Euripides, which is what these, these five students try to reproduce. And that play, I had to do a little bit of research to figure out what it's about. So the Bacchae is written by the Athenian playwright Euripides. It first premiered, we think, in 405 BC, and it's based on the Greek myth of the king Pentheus of Thebes and his mother Agave. So Dionysus, who is one of the gods, arrives to his birthplace Thebes disguised as a stranger, and One of the themes of the book is that he wants to punish the city for not worshiping him and for the king not allowing the people to not worship him. And he kind of gains these followers. He brings some with him, but then he brings some of the women from the city into the forest and they undergo all of these Bacchic rituals. And then Dionysus eventually drives Pantheus to madness and destruction. The central conflict in the play is about this difference between the mortals and the gods, and it touches on consequences of opposing forces of nature and forces of the divine. And it's unique as a play because the god is one of the characters. In a lot of Greek plays, the gods are background figures and unspoken forces, but in this one, he shows up in his full form. And so for them to try to recreate this ritual is one, really strange, but two, fits with how she has created this atmosphere of nature and this kind of supernatural, otherworldly type of feeling. Mm -hmm. The minute Richard gets to Hampton College, you automatically feel transported to like a different dimension in some ways. Like Mm -hmm. it no longer seems like the reality that he knew 
living in California. And it's just crazy because it's like a tiny town in Vermont. Like how, how different could it be? Yeah. Speaking of what you said, there's a lot of Greek references and themes that they talk about, especially in the beginning of the book, because Richard is, we know he has a love for the Greek language and he sees that there's like this group of students in the Hampton College that follow Julian Moore, who's the Greeks or language professor. And so when Richard is trying to kind of impress these four classics students with his knowledge of the Greek language, there's a lot of references to Plato, especially. I saw that there was a lot of parallels between Plato's theories and the plot of the book in general. I'm not super informed about Plato and the Greek references in the book, but I did a little bit of research. Whatever I found out was pretty interesting, but Plato has many theories. One of them, I think the biggest one, is called the theory of forms or the theory of ideas. And it just means that the physical world is an imperfect reflection of a higher non-material realm of forms. So it's just like if you see a chair in real life, it's just an imperfect reflection of like a form of a chair in a higher universe. Mm. And so you see this because Henry Winter, who's like the big brooding ancient personality guy, has this obsession with reaching a higher level of existence. So I feel like he has like a strong belief in this theory and he he had this desire to not be in the reality that he currently lived in. He wanted something bigger and better. And another theory is the allegory of the cave, which I think is super interesting when you look at it in the lens of this book. So the allegory of the cave theory just states that it's basically a metaphor that you should grow from ignorance to knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. And it just is about prisoners that are facing a wall and all chained to the wall. All they can see is the shadows of what's happening behind them because of the, a fire is lit behind them. Mm -hmm. And they have to learn how to escape with limited knowledge and I feel like when I read this theory, I really thought this is Richard. Like Richard is the prisoner with limited knowledge, not knowing what's going on in the rest of the book. He's, nobody's telling him anything. Like he's mm -hmm. very isolated from what's happening with the rest of the friend group. But he's like taking these hints and like making things make sense. And then he's the one that's trying to escape this prison and make sense of what's happening. But yeah, there's like a lot of other theories that you can... If you read all of them, you could probably connect them with something in this book. I think the more you learn about Greek mythology and the classics and these ancient philosophers, the more you can get from this book. Because yeah. Plato's student, Aristotle, who's also a famous philosopher, in one of his works, Poetics, he talks about how objects that are terrifying in real life can be beautiful when elevated to the realm of art. So a corpse, even though it may be terrifying in real life, when it's depicted as art, it's beautiful. And that also was so interesting in thinking about this beauty as terror and my theme of aesthetics. And you can see how, I mean, at a very surface level, knowing very little about the Greek philosophers, you can see how Aristotle as Plato's student may have followed along in this line of thinking. Yeah, I wanted to actually read a quote that I think matches perfectly from what you just said. So at one point in the book, Camilla gets hurt. And so this is from that part of the book. It was like a painting too vivid to be real. 
every pebble, every blade of grass, sharply defined. The sky so blue it hurt me to look at it. Camilla was limp in Henry's arms, her head thrown back like a dead girl's, and the curve of her throat beautiful and lifeless. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I feel like that is, like, a perfect example of the, quote, beauty is terror in the book. Yeah. And what you just said about how Aristotle argued that objects are terrifying in real life, like a corpse, can be beautiful when elevated to the realm of art. It's just these references are so spot on if you know them prior to reading the book. Yeah, and that goes through the whole book. Like, these characters, the five of them, are so caught up in trying to make their life aesthetic or beautiful or meaningful in this very specific way that, I mean, ultimately, everything crashes. And then there's another Greek reference in the book that's all, not very direct, but again, if you know about it beforehand, you'll definitely see it within the book. And it's just the concept of hubris and nemesis. And it's just basically like hero versus not villain, but like revenge in some way. Mm-hmm. Like nemesis is a Greek goddess for retribution and revenge. And hubris is like the act of excessive pride and arrogance, which they use the example of um, this one Greek god, Uh, Icarus and how he flies too close to the sun Mm -hmm. and that is hubris like him having excessive pride and arrogance to think that he could do that and then he flies so close at the wax that his wings are attached to melt and he falls to his demise and the fall is the nemesis and so I think you see elements of this throughout the book I think Henry Mm -hmm. is like the physical representation of hubris and then nemesis which is revenge or retribution or the fall is bunny because he's the one that dies and he's like the consequence that everybody has to deal with throughout the book yeah henry has so much hubris Mm -hmm. that is like his central character but we don't know it as much at the beginning like it kind of gets revealed to us in shades so as we go along with the book they all leave in the winter for probably two months and the whole college doesn't have heating and Richard stays because he doesn't want to go back to California and he stays in this tiny shack with no heating and those chapters when he is in the cold and trying to keep warm in these freezing Vermont winters I felt so cold like the writing there is just so evocative I was yeah totally transported it almost seems dreamlike mm-hmm. because richard was sick he was suffering from pneumonia so he was like not himself it's just crazy how her writing was like so well represented of like how you feel when you're that sick yeah and then henry comes and kind of rescues richard and at the beginning of the book the first half of the book you kind of think henry is like this protector figure and I fell for it. I was like, oh, Henry's the best. Yes. But having read the whole book and looking back on it, it's like, did he care about Richard or was just just part of his plan? I felt so dumb by the end of the book. I was yeah. like, I fell for that? Like, yeah. Obviously, there were these signs. Like, why didn't we see this? Why, why did I believe Henry? It's like, I think it's just because Richard is in such a vulnerable point. The fact that she made it so that Henry was the one that saved Richard just automatically our minds made Henry a good person in our minds. And we didn't even question it. 
but then these things keep happening. And I think this is, like, where I realized the paranoia was, like, a big theme in the book is because the whole time before, I'm going to go back a little bit, before this winter, Richard becomes really good friends with these classics because he's out in the countryside with them at Francis's, um, like, country home. And he spends so much time there. He gets to know everybody. He, like, really learns to love everybody. But he talks about how things were weird. Like, he'd wake up one day and everybody would be gone. But then when he'd ask about it, he'd be like, no, we were just asleep. And then he would be left out of inside jokes. But then he was confused and when those inside jokes were even being made without him because they were always together at the time. So he was like, are they hanging out without me? Yeah. And me being an insecure friend, being like, oh my god, this person hates me. This is my worst nightmare. (laughs) I feel so bad for this guy. He probably, like, thinks everybody hates him. That's, like, the definition of paranoia, is, like, when you're convincing yourself that something's happening when it may not be happening. And I think Richard convinced himself that he was just being paranoid. Yes. But then it's revealed later that without Richard there because they weren't sure how he would react. They were trying to do this Bacchanal ritual and it involves a lot of violent and weird things in order to like achieve that. And they weren't sure how he would react. So they just kept him out of it. Yeah. And it's not as if he has this other friend group that he can go to and he has been isolated from his family. This is the only group that he spends all his time with in classes, outside of classes. And Maybe this is a time to bring up the cult-like aspects of this group and this book. So we learn about this Bacchic ritual, and Henry tells Richard at some point everything that happened, that they did all these things, they think they killed a man because a farmer was found dead, they had blood all over them, and Bunny suspects, and that's where the tension lies and starts to build, is that Bunny... Bunny's a little bit separate from the rest of them. Like he, and it's funny because the whole first half of the book, I found Bunny so annoying. Mm -hmm. And then you look back and you think, actually, maybe he was the only one with any kind of grasp on reality because he wasn't so into this aesthetic and kind of pining for this type of life as all the others were. And the fact that all of them are so isolated from their families for different reasons, Richard doesn't have great parents and he doesn't go back to California. The twins, I think their parents died. They're orphans. Francis, I don't remember. His mom is just like, she's just not very present. She's gone to prison a few times for. Yeah. And she has had multiple husbands. Mm -hmm. And then Henry is a little bit of an enigma. I don't think we get that much about his backstory, which now looking back should have been a red flag that we don't know anything about Henry. Mm-hmm. But they, in this group, are so isolated and just involved with only each other. And Julian is this figure that initially you see as kind of this old man mentor figure. But then by the end, you realize that he could have been a cult leader type figure. Yeah. I always am like under this impression that the people that follow these cults or get into them or like is willing to be under this leader are a little bit like gullible or naive and that's why they're they fall for it the rest of these people are like very intelligent extremely smart people mm-hmm. and the fact that they all just kind of blindly listen to henry is so manipulative mm-hmm. like henry's personality 
is scary. Like, he's nice, he's knowledgeable, he's giving. Like, he, Bunny, Bunny doesn't have a lot of money, and Henry's constantly helping him out. So you just think he's, like, a nice guy with, like, these weird quirks. Yeah, and that's the other kind of plot twist or maybe something you don't see coming. Because of the way she frames it, you think that Julian is kind of the cult leader that everyone blindly follows. And so then everyone is, the characters and us, the readers, are totally blindsided when we learn about Henry and kind of take everything in context and realize that he was the master manipulator. It wasn't shocking. It was like chilling Mm -hmm. to find it out. And part of that is because I think Richard is a bit of an unreliable narrator. We get that to an extreme with Julian. I think in the first half, he kind of reveres him. And in the second half, he thinks he's a coward. And then looking back, we realize actually his actions are not that heroic. I think halfway through the book, I remember thinking, Julian is supposed to be super brilliant, but I'm just not really seeing it. And I don't see what hold he has over these students. And then later, it's because Richard is in this dreamlike kind of enamored world where he sees things this way. So all of this builds, the tension builds, and then We know what's going to happen, but as time goes on, everyone gets, like, your theme, everyone gets more and more paranoid. Bunny gets more and more isolated and suspicious. And then the culmination of the first part of the book is when he's murdered. And that chapter... Oh my god. I love this book. Yeah, reading that chapter, like, my heart was pounding. It was great. It was... I felt like I was in a bacchanal yeah. when I was reading that chapter. <laughs> like I felt like I had been transported to a different reality. Uh huh. Oh my gosh! I just I wish I had read it more slowly because now that I think about it, I just want that experience of reading that part for the first time again. Oh, mm-hmm. it's crazy. So after the murder is part two. You would think it's the end of the story because that is how it's been framed from the beginning that this is what happens. So then you expect that to be the end. But she sustains the tension because the body hasn't been found. All these police start coming in. Everyone is searching for the body in search parties. The FBI comes at some point and they're all so terrified of being questioned and what their stories say and being in alignment with each other. And I just... Like, it's so easy to lose the tension once this big moment has happened, but she managed to sustain it with those chapters. Yeah, and I remember there was one part in this section of the book where they're all trying to figure out how to get their stories straight. Mm -hmm. And all of them were present during the murdering of Bunny. They were all there in the woods. But Henry only makes sure that he has an alibi for everybody except Richard. Yeah. Like he's like, oh yeah, I bought tickets for everybody except for you that we were at the movies then, but we don't have an alibi for you, so you have to figure it out. Why would... Even if you had a reasoning for why Richard couldn't be there, I would still be like, okay, let's figure this out. Let's figure out what your alibi is, and let's make mm-hmm. think of a story. But he just kind of left Richard to the dust and was like, figure it out. Yeah, that's so true. I mean... Again, it's hard to think about what it was at the time, because now that we know how it ends, we know what kind of person Henry was. But, I mean, it just shows how anyone can be manipulated. Because Mm -hmm. Richard doesn't realize that he's being used in each of these moments. Like, he was used to get Bunny to that point so that Henry could push him off 
the ledge. If he hadn't been around, that wouldn't have happened because his somewhat outsider status means that Bunny is maybe a little less distrustful of him than he was of Henry and the other characters, and that enabled the whole thing to happen. Do you think Henry was framing Richard to be their fall guy? A hundred percent. One hundred percent. He underestimated Richard's intellect, and you see this. You see this revelation that Henry has that, oh, Richard's not who I thought he was, is when Richard figures out what happened at the Bacchanal. Richard wasn't there for the Bacchanal, and so Henry tells him that we did this thing and something bad happened. And Richard's like, oh, you killed someone, didn't you? And Henry's like, I'm so proud of you. You figured it out. <laughs> like, it was it felt very condescending and like, oh, I gave you all these hints and was just waiting for you to come to me and tell me that you figured it out. Like, But it was part of his plan. Like, this is how these kind of hesitate to use the word psychopath but these kind of charismatic manipulative people get into people's psyches that he Mm -hmm. knew he was gonna be appealing to richard's ego to say all these things and he was just drawing him in no it was definitely weird but anyway so then the search goes on the classics didn't really get involved in the actual search of his body which i think I thought was was not super smart on their behalf. I feel like if my friend was missing, I would have gone above and beyond to make sure that we could find that person. But they all kind of take a step back in this moment, and Charles becomes like this crazy alcoholic, and Francis kind of goes AWOL. Camilla and Henry are kind of hiding out together, and Richard takes this opportunity to hang out with other people. And he's just like out and having parties all every night and getting drunk so drunk that he doesn't remember what happened the previous day, which maybe isn't the best idea when you've just murdered somebody. Like, people don't know. <laughs> people blabber stuff when they're drunk. And every morning yeah. I feel like he woke up and he was like, what did I say last night? Yeah, he blacks out every night. Anyways, they... So the FBI, like you mentioned, come. And the person that they really kind of target for all the questioning is Charles. But at some point, except for Richard... All of the classics are intensely questioned by the police. Why do you think that Richard wasn't? I don't know. Do you think that maybe he was, but he just didn't tell us? Maybe. You would think that he would be questioned first because he really has no alibi. I don't know. I think the police did not imagine that any college students had anything to do with this. I think they thought the extent of their involvement could be that they were involved with drugs, but I don't think they ever imagined that the murderer was one of the college students. And so I think they just questioned the people who had some connection to that world. Because um, Cloak, that other friend, gets drugs from some sellers in New York, and Francis is rich, and Charles has been drinking and possibly taking drugs. And I think they were just following that trail. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I was a police investigator, he would be my number one suspect, not only because he doesn't have an alibi, but because he was new to the group. Everybody else was already friends for a very long time. And then Richard shows up and then a couple months later, Bunny dies. Like that, that's suspicious. Yeah. I don't know. I I really don't know. So I'm sure there's a reason that we're missing. Mm -hmm. But they do find the body and 
as soon as that happens, we're transported to the Corcoran's house, Bunny's family's house, where they're going to coordinate the funeral and have the wake. And so all these five friends go there and they stay with the family, like in sleeping bags in the basement. Yeah. And it's not even just the classics. It's like a bunch of people, Mm -hmm. like Bunny's girlfriend and five or six other people. And also Bunny has like an insane amount of siblings which I thought was funny because, like, I was wondering if the author was just playing, like, that bunnies reproduce a lot. So I was like, <laughs> is that why she Bunny has so many siblings? Oh my gosh, maybe. But yeah, his family's huge and chaotic, and those chapters were kind of insane. Yeah. It's so odd because they were the people who murdered him, and then they're having to support the family who has a strange dynamic in and of themselves. Yeah, I don't know if I love those chapters. Why are they showing us, like, this weird character that Bunny's dad is? Like, he's, like, happy one second, and then he's depressed the next second, and then they're depending so much on Henry to take care of them, and then Henry has this, like, blinding headache, and then Charles is throwing a fit and stole Francis's car and ran away, and Camila's crying, and this is so chaotic. Yeah. I definitely, I think some of the criticisms of the book are that this section in particular are too long, but to Mm -hmm. me, it was the start of the group kind of unraveling and those tensions really starting to crack between them. And it was a bit strange for them to be in this house, but I think it just adds to the dysfunction to have this chaotic family in the background of these chaotic students where the point is not what happened. The point is the tension and the cracks in these relationships. Yeah, and all of the classics were affected by Bunny's death in very different ways. Are you but just going to call them classics now, like the plastics? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Henry was kind of given the caretaker of Bunny's parents' role. And this was an opportunity that Richard took on to become the caretaker of Henry in these chapters. Like, he took a lot of pride in finding medicine for Henry and making Mm -hmm. sure he was okay and making sure he had a ride home. This was, like, a weird power shift where Richard was trying to take control of the group in some way. Like, he felt, like, the need to make everybody okay. But in the end, I feel like this was just another thing that Henry was doing to make Richard feel that he had importance in the group. Yeah, to me, it makes sense in that lens when you think of Henry as the cult leader, because at this point, Richard has completely bought into it. And so he's now taking care of Henry because he has this, what he thinks is a two-way relationship where he's indebted to Henry. I remember him actually paying a lot more attention to Henry than to the other characters, because at some point, I think, I don't remember if it's Charles or Francis, he's smoking out on the balcony with somebody and we think they're going to get caught and it's inappropriate. And Richard just kind of observes it and doesn't do anything about it yeah but with henry he's so attentive to his headaches and all of these all of the characters have these weird bodily ailments at different times in the book Mm -hmm. and he so he steals medicine for him and he tries to cover for him and i think it just shows how you how he got so enamored by this person and so drawn into this relationship Mm mm-hmm so this is about the time that I started to realize that the book broadly follows a three-act structure. 
where the first act is all of the lead up and then Bunny being murdered. And then the second act is the search and this funeral. And then the third act is when they're all back in Hampton and everything is, you would think, is normal. But the tensions are just so heightened. And then I thought, oh, it's interesting that the climax would happen at the end of act one. That's not really how the three-act structure goes. And then I realized Donna Tart is so skilled in her craft and she clearly has such a good handle on classic structure and writing techniques. There's no way that that was the climax. So that is when I realized there's something else coming because usually the cl- the climax happens middle of act three, if I'm remembering correctly. And then there's like one or two scenes to wrap up all of the action. Should we just say what it is that happens? Yeah. Get it out of the way so we can talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. So what happens is there's all this stuff happening between Henry and Camilla and Charles. Everybody ends up in this hotel room, which is where Camilla is staying at this point of the book. Charles walks in with a gun mm-hmm. and he's like ready to kill Henry. Charles is super drunk and he accidentally shoots Richard. And then they immediately know that the shot will be heard and that people are going to know that there's something happening in this hotel room and they have no idea what to say. Henry takes the gun and he shoots himself and he dies. Yeah. The craziest part about all this is you believe everything. If you just heard at face value that this is about some college students who committed murder and then one of them commits suicide, you would think it's a little far-fetched when the stakes at face value are not high. It's just about them having a crazy night, somebody was harmed, and because of that, they kill somebody, and then because of all the tension in the group, Henry kills himself. So by the time we get to the end of the book, like you said, everything is chaos, and it's so interesting to look at this book in the framework of a Greek tragedy. So I think we're most familiar with tragedy in plays with Shakespeare and Hamlet Macbeth and a lot of these tragedies ends with everybody dying or everyone is broken in some way. And so there's a theory going back to the question we had earlier about the Bacchic ritual and what actually happened. There is this theory that they actually didn't even kill the farmer. That's the theory, I believe. Yeah, because if you look at how she describes a lot of those parts of the book, the farmer is described as being mauled, and I think there are claw marks, and then bite marks. Bite marks. And at one point, Camilla said she thought she was a deer, but then she smelled animal blood. And it's possible that they just injured a deer and their memories are so hazy that they think they killed a man, but in fact, maybe they just killed a deer. And we were talking about how she's so intentional with all of the atmospheric elements. There's a couple mentions of cougars. There's one point where yeah. I think charles and richard are in a car and one of them comments that he didn't realize there were wildcats in this area and the other says yeah there's cougars here they'd say it multiple times yeah the first time i was like whatever deer cougars yeah they're like in vermont i believe it the way they describe how they found the farmer's body was so violently mutilated how could someone who has never done any act like that before capable of mutilating a body like that even when you're drunk or high or and with no tools it's not like they had knives or guns on them 
And I feel like Henry convinced himself and the others that they were responsible because he mentions that he's never felt more alive than when he killed a man. And so I feel like he didn't want to believe the other truth. And so he told Mm -hmm. people, this is what happened and created this like paranoia again in everybody's mind where in reality i don't think they did anything i think they found this body that was already mutilated by a cougar or something and i don't even think they killed deer i think that they Mm. just touched the body and had blood on their hands and that the deer thing that camilla was saying was probably they the cougar was maybe hunting a deer saw the farmer killed the farmer and so their memories are obviously not reliable at all but i don't think what henry told people what happened was also reliable at all yeah so aristotle describes greek tragedy as containing the framework of hamartia which means fatal flaw and at the beginning of the book i think in the first chapter richard says does such a thing as the fatal flaw that showy dark crack running down the middle of a life exist outside of literature I used to think it didn't. Now I think it does. And I think mine is this, a morbid longing for the picturesque at all costs. Which again goes back to my theme of aesthetics, but that is Henry's fatal flaw, his hubris and his belief that he is meant for something greater than this life. He then convinces himself and everybody that this is what happened. And the other thing that I don't fully understand, I don't know why Henry convinced everybody that bunny had to die why did bunny have to die like why couldn't they just cast him out and throw him to the wolves and just kind of ghost him i think it just has to do with like they don't live in reality they live in this alternate imaginative world of aesthetics and classical reference where i don't think it exists in their realm of possibilities to just come clean about what happened I mean, yes, theoretically, they could be prosecuted for manslaughter, but if they had preempted the whole thing and gone to the police or a teacher or somebody and said, we were doing this ritual and it was, you know, we had drugs involved and we're not sure what happened and we think that a man was injured that night, they wouldn't have gone to jail for murder, I don't think. So, like, to me, that seems like the normal option. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, I just don't think their perception of reality was real. It, it just goes to show, again, how manipulative and controlling Henry was. Because I see it that Henry wanted to kill Bunny because, honestly, Bunny was just pissing off everybody. And so their anger and their hate towards him had grown so strong. I don't know if we said this already, but Bunny had questionable characteristics he was homophobic for one and francis is gay in the story and so he was obviously targeted by a lot of the things that bunny said he was also extremely misogynistic which got on kind of everybody's nerves i think henry just like i want to kill this guy because he's so annoying it's like when you just irritate with someone it's like i wish he was dead like that thought may cross your mind but because the murder of the farmer made him feel so powerful and superior, he just convinced himself and everybody that they had to kill Bunny as well. 
And that leads me to a really big question. I know you said this earlier, but I'm not sure if you meant it this way. Do you think Henry pushed Bunny? That's how I read it. I think it was Richard. Really? Because why else would he not say it explicitly if it wasn't him? Hmm. Because he obviously had a lot of guilt, especially in the epilogue or, like, last couple chapters of the book, it kind of jumps forward to his, like, general thoughts of what happened and the guilt and, like, him questioning his decisions during this time and blah, blah, blah. And this is kind of when you realize, like, oh, he's not a very reliable narrator because he is painting this picture of making himself kind of look good and making the characters that he like look good. And if it wasn't him, he could have just said who it was. Unless he was trying to protect them. Interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. Because you said Henry pushed Bunny earlier in the episode. I was like, oh, maybe that's what she thinks. Maybe she just said it. I don't know. And then I was like waiting to ask the question. Yeah. I I guess because that was the plan. Like they had always talked about it that way. But you're right. Like things don't exactly go as expected because Bunny doesn't show up when they think he's going to. And then Richard kind of has to go find him and then he ends up coming later and so when they all are confronting each other in this wooded area even i don't think she even explicitly describes it but i can just imagine richard and henry and all of these characters like looking at each other like trying to read each other's minds of are we still gonna do it like is the plan still on it didn't go the way that we had thought and so yeah i totally believe that richard could have done it because it also kind of tracks with our what we were talking about how Richard, like, always wanted to impress Henry or, like, take care of him or, like, be there for him in some weird way. And I feel like Richard took on that responsibility maybe to, like, make Henry proud. This reminds me of the conversation we had about passing, which Mm. I won't say what exactly because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't read the book, but just the ambiguity between characters. And that also, like, speaking of messed up things... What the hell was going on with Camila and Charles? It's very strange. I don't, I don't know. It was very odd. I mean, in the first place, Camila as a character was really interesting. I felt like her being the only girl, she was kind of sexualized in this weird way. This is another way that Richard is an unreliable narrator, but I don't think we ever truly got who Camila really was. I think she was just, in Richard's eyes, like, this perfect, beautiful, like, just soft girl that he was in love with. And so, you don't, we don't really know who she is. Yeah, and then going back to my theme of aesthetics, it's it said very early on that she and Charles usually wear white and light colors, while everyone else wears black and dark colors. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. And in terms of what was going on between Camilla and Charles, I don't really know. I wonder if it was just included for shock value, because by the 90s, sex and drugs in entertainment is not shocking to anybody. So you have to include incest to actually make it shocking. Maybe. And the murder is not so much a shock because it happens at the very, like we know about it from the beginning. I think it also just mirrors how incestuous this group was not literally but 
emotionally. They were so involved with only each other. They didn't have other friends outside this group and they were so reliant on each other for everything in their lives. That's how I read it. I think this might be a good time to bring up this podcast that I've been listening to this past week um, called Once Upon a Time in Bennington mm-hmm. by Lily Analik. The podcast is about three people, all who went to this college called ben- Bennington College, which has insane parallels to the descriptions of Hampton College. So you could you know that the author, Donna Tart was obviously taking a lot from real life and her experience at this college. But they talk about in this podcast, and take everything I say with a grain of salt, I think, because none of these topics are fact-checked. They're all just kind of like assumptions that the host made. But one of the things she talks about is about how there was a relationship in Bennington College at the time where these a married couple was pretending to be brother and sister because of something rent related and they were trying to get away with something. I don't think they were married. I think they were just dating and the landlords weren't okay with people living together if they weren't married. And so Mm -hmm. they pretended to be brother and sister to get the deal. And I think maybe the Camilla and Charles story was taken from like inspiration from what that had happened in Bennington College but on that note there was like a lot of things that happened in Donna Tartt's time at Bennington College that have strong parallels to the book. Donna Tartt's Greek professor was an obvious inspiration to who Julian as a character is throughout the book. One of the things that happens in Bennington College pretty often is that the professors have relationships with students, and it made me question the relationship between Julian and Henry throughout the book, because they do have an odd bond. And even at the end, one of the biggest plot twists and why Henry kills himself is because Julian finds out about the fact that they all murdered Bunny. And I'm just wondering, it makes me think, did Henry love Julian? And he couldn't deal with the guilt of knowing that Julian knew what he did, and that was part of the reason why he wanted to end his life. Yeah, I mean, there's all these secret lunches that they have, and they meet outside of class. It's definitely not just a student-teacher relationship. I'm sure there is something more. I don't know if they were actually intimately involved, but I do believe that they were emotionally involved to an unhealthy degree. Yeah, because at the end of the book, you find out that Camila loved Henry. But I don't know if they were physically intimate either. It seemed more mm-hmm. emotional. It just makes me think that Henry and Julian could have equally had a relationship just like that. Yeah. Do you think Henry really cared about Camilla? No. Do you? I can't tell. I feel like... a big part of it was him just wanting to be this leader protector person i think that he was trying to lead charles to madness because near the end of the book charles is like a raging alcoholic hates the fact that camilla has moved out and is potentially having relationships with henry and he's drinking and he gets sick because he's been drinking so much and he gets hospitalized and they say that he should be off alcohol for a little bit so that his body can detox. And Henry's kind of like secretly giving him alcohol still because I think that he was trying to make sure Charles didn't sober up. And I think maybe him dating Camilla was another manipulative thing that he was just doing to 
drive Charles to that madness. And it just, that's another thing that just shows how deranged Henry's worldview was that when Charles was having this problem with alcohol, the normal thing to do or the, the supportive and probably healthy thing to do is to try and get them professional help. And if he has to go to rehab, he has to go to rehab. But he took it upon himself to be like, no, I'm the one who's going to make sure he's okay by continuing to give him alcohol so he doesn't go into withdrawal, mm-hmm. which technically, yes, it's better to do that than to go into withdrawal and which is potentially fatal when people are drinking those levels of alcohol. But like he's a 21, 22 year old college student who has no knowledge about this, no training. And he just tries to control the whole situation. Yeah. Like when I was reading this book, I felt like it's so atmospheric and it's one of those campus novels that's so nostalgic of college. And my college experience was not like this because I was at a big public university and I was a science major, not a humanities major. I do think this experience rings true to a lot of people who went to these small liberal arts colleges and had these intimate, not physically intimate necessarily, but emotionally intimate relationships with professors. And I'm just so glad that I'm reading this book when I'm a little older. Yeah, that's so true. Because I feel like if I had read it when I was young and a lot more impressionable, I would have wanted to emulate a lot of this atmosphere and aesthetic aspiration, which is not, I don't think that's the point of the book. I think the book is very clearly saying that this is madness and it's not something to be, it's not something to aspire to. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about that, how like this book could be impressionable to people of a young age, potentially. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a great segue into, like, dark academia that probably has existed before this book, but I think this book really catapulted that term into usage, and the idea of the dark side of academia, from what I've seen on social media, I don't think a lot of the young people who really love this term and aesthetic are using it to refer to the darker sides of academia, I think it's the appeal of vampires that young people have and and this darkness. And that also relates to the campus novel, I think is fully become a genre now that is about mostly boarding schools and universities. And I think revolves in most cases around the students where it's this intimate insular atmosphere where everyone lives in the same space, everyone's learning in the same space. And it's just interesting about how appealing that is across generations. I think like people have varying levels of interest in books about high schoolers. Like I personally don't usually choose to read those, but I think campus novels are appealing across ages Mm -hmm. and it's this kind of community and the pursuit of knowledge and this coming of age story that I think is so interesting. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like there is within this genre of book and even within this book, almost like a culture of whiteness because everyone at the school is white and having read the book, it seems almost ridiculous to imagine a black student or a South Asian student. And I don't really know why, but it's just such an insular world that I'm like, is it only for the 
white wealthy elite. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I can't think of a single like gothic style dark academia book that I've read that does include diverse characters. Maybe it's just because like especially this book is set in the 80s in a very small town kind of in the middle of nowhere. That's not where you would necessarily see like a diverse community at all. But then again, like it is fiction, so you could just add in a diverse character and it wouldn't do any harm. Yeah, I mean, the history of this type of book historically is very male and white and elite. Mm -hmm. I think like throughout the 18 and 1900s, writing about these big American universities or British prep schools is all this very particular type of person. One of the more recent campus novels that I mentioned earlier, The Idiot by Elif Batuman, is a nice version of a non-white character. She's Turkish by heritage, and her parents are immigrants. And it's still such a campus novel. I mean, like, that book is... You can see how it's been inspired by that genre. Mm -hmm. We don't have... This episode's already so long. We don't have time to do a deep dive into campus novels and dark academia and this idea of white culture and elitism. But if you subscribe to our newsletter, which we'll put a link for below, we are going to do a bit more of a deep dive into diversity in campus novels and the genre in general. Yeah, go check it out. Well, I have a passage. Perfect. So this passage is taken from the end of the book, and it's kind of in Richard's like revelation moment where he's realizing in hindsight everything that happened after Henry kills himself and college is over and blah blah blah. I had always thought Henry's coldness essential to the marrow, and Julian's only a veneer for what was at bottom a warm, kind-hearted nature. But the twinkle in Julian's eye as it looked at him now was mechanical and dead. It was as if the charming theatrical curtain had dropped away and I saw him for the first time as he really was. Not the benign old sage, the indulgent and protective good parent of my dreams, but ambiguous, a moral neutral, whose beguiling trappings concealed a being watchful, capricious, and heartless. Every single one of those words is so meaningful and adds to the character and the personality of that person and the feeling that Richard has. Yeah, and I think she turns a lot of these creative writing rules around because one of them is show don't tell and she does show a lot in her nature descriptions but she also tells us about these characters and then the other is a lot of people say not to use adjectives and rather than using multiple adjectives just use a stronger noun but she uses a lot of adjectives and it's very effective because yeah she picks them carefully where they have slightly nuanced meanings and round out the character that she's describing. Yeah. I did have one more short quote, which is the beauteous terror quote that I just wanted to say because it's just so famous. And I feel like you could write essays on this paragraph. Beauty is terror. Whatever we call beautiful, we quiver before it. And what could be more terrifying and beautiful to souls like the Greeks or our own than to lose control completely? to throw off the chains of being for an instant, to shatter the accidental of our mortal selves. So good. I know. (laughs) What I said about the allegory of the cave theory by Plato, you can directly correlate that theory into this book, like to throw off the chains of being for an instant. And then 
beauty is terror is something that Aristotle talks about in his theories. It's just like that one paragraph has so much. She's definitely referencing a lot of things that went over her head because she studied classics. Mm-hmm. So she she knows a lot about this topic. Her writing style is so interesting. I definitely got echoes of a little bit of Henry James and a lot of Evelyn Waugh. And I think I read somewhere that her writing influences are Fitzgerald, Waugh, and surprisingly Dickens, which I don't really see Dickens in this book, but I think the Goldfinch is a lot more like that. Mm. So I don't know if you got this feeling, but I got the feeling that I had read it before. Like it felt familiar. It felt familiar, but I think it's just because this book has triggered so many imitations and inspirations. I mean, the world she creates is just... Insane. It's so good. There's, I have one last, before we move on to Filter the Chai, I have one last quote that I wanted to share because I think it shows like her descriptive and mood setting power. So it's, it's in the moments leading up to Bunny's murder when they're all plotting this thing. It was a strange, still oppressive day. The campus seemed deserted. Everyone was at the party, I supposed. And the green lawn, the gaudy tulips, were hushed and expectant beneath the overcast sky. Somewhere a shutter creaked. Above my head, in the wicked black claws of an elm, a marooned kite rattled convulsively, then was still. Like, I just can't even think of other writers that create mood so well. I I mean, like, gaudy tulips? Who thinks that tulips are gaudy? Right? But they are if you're about to kill someone and it's cold and desolate. And I don't know if she meant to, but I felt like she was referencing Tulips by Sylvia Plath, which is one of her famous poems. And she wrote it when she was in a hospital bed and she was ill and someone had brought her tulips. So she writes this whole poem about the tulips. And the first line is, the tulips are too excitable. It is winter here. And then later on in the poem, she says, the tulips are too red in the first place. They hurt me. And I was like, oh, like, is she conscious of all this imagery she's creating? Because I think even later in the book, she does use a lot of flower imagery. I think, I forget what flower it is, but there's something with Camilla. And then the tulips come up again. And then even at, at the end, that line about the kite, like, you would think she's describing a a dying animal. The way she describes, like, the kite shuddering, it, like, rattled convulsively and then it was still... It's just so good. Yeah. all None of the experiences that she's drawing from are new to anybody. They're all something that we have seen and experienced ourselves. But to pull from those experiences to evoke a feeling within us is just like, I don't think I've ever read a book like that before. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to filter the chai because I want to talk more about this book, but I think we I have know. to filter the chai. <laughs> I think we have to let everyone go. Yeah. <laughs> if you made it this far in the episode, good job. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> You've listened to us ramble for more than an hour. Yeah. All right. Well, what did you rate this book? I rated this book nine and a half out of ten. I loved it. I don't know. I, I feel like I just couldn't give it a ten because I gave passing a ten. And passing to me is a perfect novel. Like, so I felt like I couldn't give it the same rating, but I could give it a 10 out of 10. I mean, not every 10 out of 10 is the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. What about you? I give it a 9 out of 10, too. I love this book. I I think I was very 
apprehensive and unsure in the first like 100 pages because I was like oh I'm not getting any of these Greek references like I feel like I'm missing out on this book but you can get so much from this book without knowing anything about that kind of stuff and let me know if there's anybody else out here that can answer this question but is it possible to read this book and not talk about it with somebody because (laughs) I was reading this book and I was telling everybody everything that happened in the book, just so I could talk about it. Yeah, I think there were several parts in the book when I out loud gasped. And mm-hmm. I I do react to books that I'm reading, but I usually react internally, and at the most, like, maybe my expression changes. But this one, I was, I like, audibly gasped. Yeah. All right, so now for our question that we ask at the end of every episode. We have been asking, will this book stand the test of time? But I feel like for this season, we need to adjust it a little bit because a lot of the books that we're reading have come out over 10, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I think we maybe need to ask ourselves, should this book stand the test of time? Yeah, that's fair. And I think 100%. Yeah. I don't know if this book really gives you like new information or like teaches you a lesson or like that's how I've answered the question in the past couple seasons is did this book teach me something or have a lesson that I want to show others? I don't think this book has that, but it just evokes such a feeling and atmosphere that I've never experienced reading any other kind of book that I feel like everybody needs to experience that. Yeah, I I was thinking of saying no because kind of like you said, the way I've answered this question in the past is if I think a book speaks to people across cultures across generations and has something universal to relate to and i don't think that this book necessarily has that it's about this very specific type of person in this very specific atmosphere that a lot of people probably can't relate to but we just spoke with um novel pairings and sarah and chelsea talked about when they talk about a classic they think is this a work that will always have more to say And I think by that definition, yes, this book is and should Mm -hmm. be a classic because there's just, it just has layers. Like there's so many, so many layers and different perspectives you can view it through. Even till date, like when I was researching for this book, I found Reddit discussions that were posted like three months ago. Mm -hmm. And so clearly this book is still having an impact on the people. Mm -hmm. Well, shelf discovery. Yes. Do you want to go first? Sure. Number one on that list is A Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern. I knew you were going to say Erin Morgenstern. Yeah. (laughs) Because she does that. She just creates like this world and this other dimension that you are just transported to. The Starless Sea is an entanglement of stories and plot lines that begin with the student, Zachary Ezra Rollins, when he comes across an authorless book in the library that narrates memories from his own childhood. Desperate to know more. Zachary unknowingly is given a second chance into a world of bees, swords, hearts, doors, and magic. And I just remember when I was reading this book, I just felt like I was floating, just like fully immersed into this world that she was creating. And I have a couple more, but why don't you go first? Okay, so I'm going to mention two that are not my actual recommendations because I know people would have heard of these. One is The Idiot that I've already talked about by Elif Batuman, which I think is just it's so funny. The premise is this girl, Celine, is Turkish-American. She goes to Harvard, and she's very concerned with how to live her life. 
Like she questions everything about why people are the way that they are, why things are the way that they are. We learn about her journey in academics and some of the classes she takes. And parts of it are just so funny because the observations she makes are things that we just take for granted and nothing much happens in the book. I I wouldn't say there's a plot, but it just creates such a evocative atmosphere and has really interesting observations. And if you miss college and learning and that kind of environment, this book would be great. The other one is Babel by R.F. Kuang, which very squarely falls into dark academia. And I find that both of these two works are fairly derivative of the campus novel. So campus novel for the idiot and dark academia for Babel, that even if they weren't directly inspired by the secret history, I'm sure they were inspired by the tradition that the secret history writes in. So those are my two like campus dark academia recommendations that I'm sure a lot of people who loved this book have already read. (laughs) So my two actual recommendations are the first is My Cousin Rachel by Daphne du Maurier, who's probably most famous for Rebecca. And Daphne du Maurier in general, I think to me is the ultimate gothic writer. So this is my recommendation for gothic and tension and that kind of feeling. So the book is about a man, Philip, who was essentially raised by his cousin, Ambrose. And Philip is the man who's going to inherit all of Ambrose's possessions. One day, Ambrose goes off on a trip to Florence, where he falls in love, gets married, and then suddenly dies. And Philip goes to meet Ambrose's widow, and the book follows in him getting to know the widow, Rachel, and trying to uncover what their relationship was like, and this big house, mysterious house. I feel like a sense of place in a big mansion is like a tenant of gothic stories. And just the like paranoia and mistrust and things not being what they seem. I almost loved this book more than Rebecca, but I love Rebecca so much. But this book is great. I think this is, if you really liked the gothic vibes and the tension, this would be good to pick up next. And my other recommendation is Euphoria by Lily King. So this is a novel about three anthropologists who go on this journey to New Guinea. Two of them are a couple. The other is new to the group and they are going to further their work. But along the way, all of these emotions come out with of love and jealousy and competition and the, the kind of descent into chaos theme that we get with this group in the secret history is there in euphoria. So that's what I would recommend if you liked that element. Yeah. And then I also had two more. <laughs> um, the first, I know. <laughs> yeah. You get a whole book list. You get a whole book list here and then you'll get a whole other book list from our newsletter. Yeah. So this book is a completely different genre. It's The Shining by Stephen King. It's horror, obviously, but I think it's similar. And the reason why I picked it in the sense of the growing anxiety and paranoia that we talk about in this book that eventually leads to complete chaos and madness. And there's a lot of, like, books by Stephen King. Obviously, he's written, like, I don't even know, like, billions of books at this point. (laughs) All of them are, most of them are horror and, like, violent, but this one specifically, I think he does a really great job in building that tension. 
Mm-hmm. And although the climax of that is a lot more violent and obscure than this climax was, if you are obsessed with that like adrenaline feeling and like that building tension and anxiety that you got from this book, I recommend that one. And then my last recommendation isn't a book that I loved, but I think it's my only recommendation that's also Dark Academia. And it's, I think it's more like YA. It's called The Ninth House by Leigh Bardugo. The main character, Alex Stern, and her college experience at Yale University. So it's also a campus novel and dark academia similar to this book. However, Alex's adventure is a little different than any normal teenager's college experience because she's part of a specific organization that is involved with dark magic. Great. And we hope you loved this book as much as we did. And I know. Maybe you'll pick up some of these recommendations. Or if you want some more diverse book options, we will list those in our newsletter. Neha, do you want to tell everyone what we're reading next? Yes. So next episode, we are doing a Odyssey retelling called The Penelopead by Margaret Atwood. It's just it's a short novel of the Odyssey, but in Penelope's perspective and what happens to the 12 maids that she lives with when yeah i think we had so much to choose from in margaret atwood's collection of works and we picked a little bit more of an obscure one i think she's Mm -hmm. probably more famous for some of her dystopian and sci-fi novels but i am excited about this one and i think it'll be a good follow-up to the secret history because it is a retelling of greek mythology Mm -hmm. yeah for sure all right see you guys next time Thanks for listening to The Novel Team. We are your hosts, Nehan Trithi, and our music is created by our Florida co-team. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations or episode commentary. Subscribe to our free newsletter linked in the episode description. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.